0: Welcome to Prophecy Today Radio. Prophecy Today is a radio program that looks at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Prophecy Today was started over 20 years ago by my father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. As many of you know, after a short illness, Dr. DeYoung went home to be with the Lord recently. We appreciate your prayers and support as we move forward with the ministry of Prophecy Today, our family has received so many great text and posts letting us know what our father and our father's ministry have meant to them and we would like you to know that those have meant so much to us but without further ado, we'd like to talk to our first radio guest today Ken Timmerman
1: well Rick it's a pleasure and it's an honor and uh, I certainly um, uh, was was tracking your father's illness and like all all of you and all of our listeners, uh, grief is passing. But I know that he's uh, seeing the glory of the Lord.
0: Thank you so much, Ken. Let's start in Afghanistan. Could you update us on the situation there?
1: Well, Rick, uh, (laughs) every day seems to bring a new load of disasters, and all of them were avoidable. All of this was avoidable. Uh, President Biden has, frankly, shown just catastrophic, leadership. Uh, When people say there's no leadership coming out of Washington, I I would take issue with that. There is leadership coming out of Washington, and it's all wrong. It was President Biden who made the decision in July to shut down Bagram Air Force Base. Now, that was a key, key decision. It um, essentially kept us from having any air cover for our uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan and uh, forced us then to move to the Kabul airport, which is right in the middle of the city, whereas Bagram is outside and there's a much uh, uh, broader perimeter around it that can be secured. President Biden also uh, gave the orders not to evacuate civilians first. Uh, and he says to justify himself, well, that's because we didn't want to panic the Afghan government. Well, the Afghan government was preparing to pull up stakes anyway once we left. Um, and the intel, our intelligence community understood that full well. This attack that cost the lives of the thirteen, the twelve Marines, and the one Navy medic. Uh, again, the kind of thing that could have been avoided had we been in Bagram. And it's all on Joe Biden. And frankly, his leadership um, is is just so horrible.
0: Well, I have a few more questions about uh, Afghanistan, but just to, to go off of what you just said. Who is going to, if if there's a leadership vacuum or a lack of leadership here uh, from the United States, who is going to fill that vacuum? Who is going to take over as the leadership role there in Afghanistan or there in that part of the world?
1: Well, I think what we've done is abandoned Afghanistan, essentially, to the Chinese and the Iranians. Um, Both of them are neighbors. Let's not forget that. They're both immediate neighbors to Afghanistan, Uh, and let's not forget Pakistan also, (laughs) Another Another neighbor, Pakistan, is uh, playing with uh, ISIS-K or ISIS-Khorasan, the group that uh, the U.S. has blamed for that attack on Thursday. The Chinese welcomed the Taliban to Beijing the day before they took uh, over Kabul and pledged to support them. They stand to pick up a lot of the uh, mineral resources from Afghanistan, and the Iranians are looking to greatly expand their trade with Afghanistan and in particular to ship oil and uh, refined oil products to them as a means of getting around what remains of U.S. sanctions. Now, you know, the Biden folks have said they're going to eliminate U.S. sanctions on Iran anyway just to be nice to Mullahs. It's, you know, Thursday, if it's Thursday, it's be nice to Mullahs Day. If it's Friday, let's get out of a, uh, you know, one of our bases in the Middle East. And retreat with our legs between uh, our tail between our legs. Uh, Really, we are abandoning our leadership role in the region because of failed leadership in Washington.
0: Well, to go further, if uh, the Taliban taking over in Afghanistan is a win win double victory for Iran, because of not only do they undermine the USA, but also it's a source of water for its parched lands there in Iran.
1: Uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, that is another aspect of this. And uh, so the Iranians have their own issues with failed leadership, and, and their management of water resources is one of them. Uh, this year, the, the drought combined with siphoning off water to uh, give to regime allies and buddies and cronies led to months and months of protests, often violent protests, and these violently put-down protests uh, across the country. So if the uh, regime in Iran can uh, get out of its water crisis by siphoning water from Afghanistan, that will add to the pleasure of being able to sell them oil and gasoline.
0: Continuing our theme in that area, I've, I've seen some other articles coming across Russia, Iran, and China to hold naval drills in, in the Persian Gulf later this year. That trio seems to be popping up more and more. What do you think about that?
1: Well, you know, Rick, this is something that your dad and I uh, followed very, very closely, and we've been doing it for a number of years, this growing convergence of interests between, uh, among Russia, Iran, China, Russia, Iran, China, and Turkey, Turkey coming in going out of that alliance. Uh, but in this particular case, these are actual military-naval exercises, and they will be held in the Persian Gulf region. Uh, that is just enormously, enormously important. Uh, these uh, exercises are aimed at demonstrating to the United States that we are no longer the masters of those waterways, that we are no longer the guarantors of international maritime freedom, uh, freedom of the seas, of the shipping lanes, that Russia and China, with bad actor Iran, together could control, the Strait of Hormuz, and access to Persian Gulf oil. That is a really, really dangerous development, and it's um, something that you never hear discussed here in the United States except on this program.
0: Russia using defense sales uh, in the arms sales in the Middle East, they're boosting their arms sales. They're, again, continuing to try to increase their presence and their influence in that area of the world, are they not?
1: Well, they are. And uh, remember that Russia has two main exports, oil, oil and gas, and uh, weaponry, advanced weaponry. And increasingly, the Russians are exporting better and better equipment. We've seen that with their uh, sales of the S-300 and the S-400 air defense missiles to Syria. And recently, though, the S-400 appeared to have intercepted Israeli missiles trying to attack Hezbollah positions in Syria during a, an airstrike a couple of weeks ago that I discussed with your dad. Um, the, um, what I find particularly disturbing here uh, this past week uh, are trips to Moscow by the Saudi defense minister, deputy defense minister, and the UAE defense minister, both of which to buy weapons from Moscow. Both the Saudis and the Emiratis have been good clients of the United States, They've also been buying weapons from the Brits in the Saudis' case and from the French in the Emirates' case. But they've been very good uh, 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 clients of the United States. They've been good partners with the United States, and uh, they have a lot of interoperability with the United States. If they start buying Russian weapons, um, this poses all kinds of challenges uh, to us because we've transferred to both of these countries, Saudi Arabia and the UAE advanced american equipment were in the process of negotiating an F-35 sale, our latest um, stealth fighter. And um, it now turns out that um, the UAE has been in negotiations and it has been funding the development with Russia of their own fifth-generation stealth fighter called the Checkmate. Uh, this is a Sukhoi single-engine version. looks a little bit like the F-35, but has its own uh, avionics. And uh, we can't be uh, transferring advanced military technology to countries that are also cooperating on advanced military technology with Russia. We just can't do it. We can't do it if they're doing the same with China. Uh, We pulled out of the F-35 deal with Turkey because Turkey is buying advanced military gear from Russia. And I think uh, uh, this this is really a bad omen for the future of U.S. relations. And I don't blame the Emiratis, or the Saudis for this. I blame the Biden administration because Biden, uh, first thing that he did when he came into office, he canceled major arms sales to Saudi Arabia and basically pushed them into the hands of of the uh, Russians. And he's threatening to do the the same thing with the UAE because the UAE signed a deal with Israel. Under this administration in Washington, we go back to the Obama era where it was uh, better to be uh, an enemy of Israel if you wanted to be friends with Washington.
0: Well, that leads me to my next question, because we've talked about Russia, we've talked about China, and we've talked about Iran. Uh, recently in the news, the, n- the new Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Bennett, Prime Minister Bennett, has met with President Biden. I know they, they met on Friday uh, to talk about a strategy for stopping Iran without a nuclear deal. Can you tell us about that and where that situation stands?
1: Going into that meeting, the two leaders were at loggerheads in their positions towards Iran. The Biden administration and the president personally was determined to get a new deal with Iran on their nuclear program, or at the very least, to negotiate the end of U.S. sanctions, even if that was a unilateral position with no concessions from Iran. Iraq. Whereas Natalie Bennett went to Washington, hoping to convince Biden of the necessity of holding Iran's nuclear weapons program in check. I think a lot of tension is going to come out uh, in the future. We're going to see that uh, uh, the, the, uh, the tensions between Netanyahu and Biden were not just personal, but they also had to do with the enduring security positions of Israel towards Iran that have been rejected by Team Biden, who I would call Team Surrender.
0: Well, this is certainly a situation to keep our eye on. Thank you so much, Ken, and thank you for keeping our listeners informed.
1: Rick, again, it's my pleasure and an honor, and uh, I look forward to it. God bless.
0: Stay tuned next for our Middle East news update with our broadcast partner, Dave Dolan, right after this.
3: on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com.
2: And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8Prophecy8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets.
0: Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We have with us the gentleman that does our Middle East News update. We have Dave Dolan with us today, and we have lots to talk about, don't we, Dave?
4: We do, uh, Rick, but I do want to say first, uh, um, your father's passing. uh, A great man, a large man, (laughs) physically, and also a big heart. And uh, all those years uh, of uh, knowing him since the mid-80s, seeing him almost every year in Jerusalem, and going with him, and to Jordan, uh, to Aqaba, and to um, Petra. It was just fantastic knowing him, and we all miss him, and and I'm thinking of
0: you and your family. Well, thank you so much. Those words mean more than you know, uh, and we all miss him as well. But as we get into the Middle East News update, we look at uh, probably the biggest thing on the horizon right now is the recent kind of mini-summit with the new Prime Minister Bennett of Israel and President Biden. What can you tell us about that?
4: Well, they, uh, first of all, postponed it for a day because uh, uh, um, Naftali Bennett and his team with him had already arrived at the White House on Thursday uh, and were waiting there, preparing for the meeting with Joe Biden when the news broke of the atrocious terror attack in Afghanistan. So that meeting was postponed till Friday. But at the beginning of the meeting, uh, Biden uh, spoke to the press, and uh, Bennett made a few comments, too, but mostly Biden. He said, we're going to start out by discussing COVID and Israel's response to the COVID uh, crisis, which has been, um, you know, examined all over the world because they were the first to vaccinate most of their people, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, But he did add that we will look at Iran, and he said, I'm going to stress uh, diplomacy, but he said, we we do leave other options on the table. And that was an important statement because the Israeli press was saying that that Bennett planned to, well, not twist his arm, but to, you know, urge Biden and his administration to um, take a tougher stand on Iran and its nuclear program. And, uh, you know, again saying, uh, well, the chief of staff said on Thursday, that Israel is stepping up, it's planning for a possible attack on Iran's nuclear program. So that was in the background. But uh, it was thought that uh, during the meeting itself, uh, Bennett did not do that. That's what the Israeli press reported because of the bombing in Afghanistan, because of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's thought that uh, Joe Biden is the same Joe Biden that was uh, vice president 10 years ago when uh, President Obama at the time announced a total troop pullout from Iraq uh, by October of that year, 2011, 10 years ago. And, um, of course, in the end they couldn't do it because up uh, popped ISIS. And the Israelis uh, have seen that now. We've all seen that in Afghanistan. And uh, they're now saying 10 to 15,000 terrorists are known to operate there. And we, we have lost all our capability to monitor them on the ground. And the Israelis are, frankly, very disturbed by that fact, too, but it's thought that in the end, Bennett realized that this isn't the president that's going to militarily back us in the Middle East. And, you know, that's the other uh, thing that I should add, is Afghanistan is due east of Iran, and the Bagram Air Force Base was within easy flying distance of Iranian targets, had there been a conflict. So that was a very reassuring fact, uh, to the Israelis if they ever had to take action, that the U.S. is right on scene, basically. And, of course, the forces in Iraq on the other side. So both sides of Iran, there were U.S. forces. Now there will not be uh, to the east. And that's a huge loss to the Israelis, frankly, and they're quite, uh, of course, the way the withdrawal is carried out, too. But it, And it's traumatizing in the sense that it reminded Israelis of their horrible pullout from the Gaza Strip, under the late Ariel Sharon in 2005. And, of course, Prime Minister, um, former Prime Minister Netanyahu was not Prime Minister then either. And he warned that, hey, radical Muslims are going to jump up and take over Gaza if we totally leave. But, of course, they did totally leave. It was hasty. It had a lot of trauma in it. And it was less than two years, Rick, before Hamas took over the Gaza Strip, a radical Islamic terror group allied with al-Qaeda, allied with Iran, and uh, they see the same thing happening in Afghanistan. Not only will it not have Israel's allies there anymore, right next to Iran, but it will have terrorists all over the place.
0: Well, I would like to continue to ask you about the Afghan situation and also Hamas, but before I do that, and before we leave the the topic of uh, this kind of summit with uh, Bennett and Biden, can you compare and contrast... Uh the the former Prime Minister Netanyahu with the uh the new Prime Minister, what are the differences and and on a substantive level uh and on their their kind of outlook for the for the nation of Israel?
4: Well, on the issues of COVID and Iran that were supposed to have dominated uh, Friday's uh meeting and the press confirms they did Uh, They shared virtually the same views, Netanyahu and Bennett. Um, Iran's nuclear program must be stopped, which, by the way, Biden acknowledged that in his comments as well. And I forgot to add, he said that America will help resupply the Iron Dome missiles, that Israel was forced to fire tens of thousands of them in the uh, late May war with Hamas. So that was reassuring. He actually said three times Uh, during those comments uh, and during the meeting, that America stands by Israel. America stands by Israel, which they thought he was probably doing, President Biden, as a reassurance in the face of the withdrawal and uh, everything that's taken place with that. So that may be the case. But the two, um, former leader and the current leader, share those two things. COVID as well, they both took a take a took our take a strong stand and you know restrictions and all sorts of things so they don't really differ it's more um, that uh, netanyahu was seen as very right wing and very allied with donald trump so it's felt that he would have had a frostier time with joe biden than bennett did and bennett even made that argument himself to reporters that hey, I'm fresh and new, and we I have a broad coalition government that includes, as it were, Democrats, left-wing Israeli parties. So I think the president will be more comfortable with me, and that may well have been the case.
0: Well, it certainly bears watching the relationship between President Biden and the new Prime Minister Bennett. As our reporter on the ground there, how is the Israeli body politic viewing the Afghan situation?
4: Rick, a headline in the Jerusalem Post on Friday, one of their front page articles struck me very, very much. It said, in bold letters, the American empire is over. Hmm. So basically, they feel that both the last President Trump and the current President Biden are isolationists. They don't want to have commitments all over the world. They say they're going to focus on China and Russia, but of course, Russia and China announced just the other day that they're again to have naval exercises with Iran in the Persian Gulf in a few months. So um, the Middle East, you know, they feel like they understand why the American leaders and people are tired of the endless wars in the Middle East. And uh, and they've done the same with Lebanon. They pulled out after uh, nearly 20 years in Lebanon in the year 2000. And uh, they know all that, but they also have a stronger sense of what this war on terror is, that this is an Islamic fundamentalist attempt to wipe out Western civilization, wipe out Christianity, wipe out Judaism, and rule the world, the international caliphate they want to set up. So. They think it's naive, basically, from the people I've talked to to think that the war on terror is anywhere near over, and it obviously is not, and uh, that, you know, that, that this was a mistake, that the withdrawal really was a mistake, just as their Gaza withdrawal was a mistake. What have they been having in Israel year after year of rockets coming from there? If Israel had remained in the Gaza Strip, that wouldn't be happening. If America remained in Afghanistan, it would be a lot safer Middle East, so... They're grieving over the loss of our soldiers, too, but also just the policy.
0: Um, final question, Dave. Uh, when you look at Hamas, how are they viewing this situation, and what is, how is this going to dictate how they act in the future?
4: Well, we don't even have to guess. They put out Hamas has several statements this week uh, claiming the war on terror was victorious for them and that uh, the Muslims have won, the Muslims have driven the great Satan out of part of the region, and they'll do the same elsewhere in the end. Uh, So they feel emboldened, they're uh, applauding it, they're cheering it, as uh, the Iranian leadership has done, as Hezbollah has done. Uh, We, uh, they believe, have handed them a victory, and uh, the war on terror didn't end And they intend to carry it on, and they're making that very clear.
0: Well, Dave, again, thank you for the kind words at the beginning of this uh, interview, and thank you for your commitment to keeping our listeners informed. And, of course, uh, we here at Prophecy Today will continue to do that. But thank you for your role in our ministry. And then again, thank you for your friendship to our family as well.
4: Well, I'm honored for both, and God bless. We're praying for you.
0: Well, that was our Middle East News Update. Stay tuned now. We are going to go to break, but when we come back, we will have more from our broadcast partners looking at current events and how they relate to God's prophetic word. You are listening to Prophecy Today Radio.
2: Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at
0: joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. For those of you keeping track at home, this is not Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. As many of you know, uh, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, my father, passed away um, earlier this month. But the Ministry of Prophecy today continues, and the radio program continues through both my brother and myself, uh, my brother Jimmy DeYoung Jr., and myself, Rick DeYoung. And right now we have a good friend of the family, longtime friend of the family, and friend of the ministry as well, Winky Madad. Winky, how are you today?
5: I am fine, thank you. Again, I extend to you and the family my condolences, and uh, I think in your Father's spirit we will keep things up as best we can.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us. We want to get right into the news, and we're looking at Russia and Vladimir Putin hosting uh, Jordan's King. Um, They're looking at a UAE deal and kind of expanding uh, Russia's impact in the Middle East from Afghanistan to Jordan to uh, the Palestinian areas. Can you talk a, a little bit about that? Well, Russia under Putin is in an expansive
5: mood. They're not going to stay where they are despite all the problems they have economically uh, and, uh, and, and democratically and the, and the rallies and the uh, oppression of the free press there. We've all been witness of assassinations, in fact. And here in the Middle East, Syria has the greatest ally it has in Russia. Uh, Russia has allowed Assad the son to kill tens of thousands of his uh, citizens in the war that's gone now over ten years, thanks to former President Obama allowing the red lines to be crossed again and again. And I point this out in terms of what is America standing here in the Middle East against the Russia that is moving in all directions and is not being uh, properly held to account uh, under... Our former Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, we had a dialogue, we had understandings, but again, as you and our listeners know, Israel is not a superpower, and it has limitations, and if the United States is not fully backing and not coming in on an assertive diplomatic front, uh, it's not only Israel, which of course we all care about, but a lot of the Middle East is going to be in trouble.
0: From your vantage point there in Israel, what, what is Russia's end goal, or what is their end game, or the main object that they're trying to uh, achieve with their role in the Middle East?
5: Well, the short-term role, of course, uh, Rick, is uh, instability. Instability works uh, very well in undermining not only the patience of uh, elected leaders, but the people who elect them, and they lose confidence. And either they want to run, as we're seeing that right now in Afghanistan, or they become uh, simply not involved, Uh, not learning things, not watching the radio, excuse me, watching the television, listening to the radio, or reading the newspapers, to find out, because things don't stay where they are in politics and military, Maneuvers or moves, and they come closer to Europe and then closer to the United States. The long-term goal, of course, is there's oil in the Middle East. Uh, there are other material benefits. There's domination of waterways. Uh, Russia is not ignorant of China's entry into Africa, especially East Africa and other places, and. For some reason, uh, dictators seem to like to be very competitive no matter who they run over.
0: Switching gears, you just mentioned the new uh, Israeli prime minister. He was supposed to meet with President Biden um, of the United States, and I know that uh, I say supposed to because uh, the situation in Afghanistan may have altered that meeting. But I know they were going to talk about the uh, strategy for potentially stopping what seemed like a failed nuclear deal with Iran. Could you talk a little bit about that and what Prime Minister Bennett is going to talk to Biden about there?
5: Well, even to me, and with all humbleness, I'm kind of a little bit uh, uh, not quite on the ball on this one because a couple of months ago, Bennett praised Netanyahu's handling of Iran to the skies been on here on the television here in israel you know on the social media platforms they play these clips and now he's been very negative uh well it's his ball to handle now and of course i don't know how much attention he has now with the administration or they're simply going to uh sort of do the formalities of the meeting and, and skip a lot of the uh, talking that was supposed to go on but the point is i think that what Mr. Bennett wanted to say, which is nothing new, is that a nuclear Iran presents the most dangerous threat, not only to Israel, and I'm speaking as an Israeli, and of course I have that foremost in my mind, but the Middle East and wider areas comes under immediate threat, and we can see that now as Iran is actually moving into Afghanistan. It has moved for the past year or so into Iraq, moving the Shiites. And here, close at the home, we have Lebanon, which is completely a non-state actor at this moment in time, and Gaza, which has the support uh, of Hezbollah, which, of course, is an agent of Iran. If America doesn't see these uh, outreaches from Iran and doesn't tie it in either to Russia or other, it's going to have to face a threat that it's completely unprepared for. And if Mr. Bennett does not make that impression upon Mr. Biden or his advisors, it's not only Israel and the Middle East, but again, to repeat myself in your previous question, it's going to go far wider in terms of influence and threats.
0: Netanyahu, former Prime Minister Netanyahu, took a very hard line against Iran. Uh, Is is there a contrast in the way that uh, the new Prime Minister is going to deal with Iran, or is it going to be more of the same?
5: Mr. Bennett has said he wants to have a new spirit. I think that means, in American terms, more conciliatory. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu was very brusque, very upfront and giving no quarter in trying to impress upon the United States that you cannot trust Iran. And I think, looking at Afghanistan and other places, it's the same story repeating itself. I would hope that if Mr. Bennett is following basically the same policy, even if he lowers the tone, as as we say, in between, you know, in this, when I whisper into your ear... He's saying the same message. Israel cannot afford to allow Iran to gain nuclear weapons. There has to be some point where America must understand that Israel is going to act. If it acts on its own, it will do it, if it has to. The idea, though, is that if America is a friend of Israel, is a friend of democracy and morality, and I would even say biblical values in terms of how man treats man then uh mr biden should be on board
0: reports coming out of gaza are that hamas there has basically sparked a confrontation in protest of these anticipated talks with uh, prime minister bennett and president biden what is their viewpoint on this
5: Hamas started in again with its balloons and demonstrations at the border, and unfortunately even shooting through a sniper hole in the wall, getting up close and severely injuring a a soldier after Israel let in Qatari money from Qatar uh, so that it's like you can't trust them. And so for Israel to weaken its defenses, to give up territory, Uh, to give in to the Hamas demands is not healthy for us, and it just encourages uh, increased uh, terror activity uh, as we see in other places in the Middle East.
0: Lastly, Winky, and we appreciate your time today so much, lastly, we, on this program um, and throughout our ministry, have focused on the Temple Mount. Uh, And uh, we look at it, and I know as you do as well as basically the most sacred piece of real estate on the face of the earth. But uh, we're looking at it, and there's some articles coming out where it seems like maybe those that are worried that the status quo could be changed, that uh, there is more prayer being allowed by the by the Jewish faithful on the Temple Mount. Can you speak to that, and is that the case?
5: Well, there is an increase uh, in the Jewish presence on the Temple Mount, although as our listeners, I hope, are quite well aware, it's limited to about uh, three hours or so in the morning and one hour in the afternoon, and those of us who are observant take a very particular, defined route of going on the outer extremities of the Temple Mount. In other words, We try to stay away from Arabs. Uh, We don't want to interfere with their buildings or, or anything else, but we'd like to be able to visit. We'd like to be able to read from Psalms. If we can pray quietly without disturbing anybody, and anybody who's been up with us knows it's very quiet. We stand still for about four minutes on the eastern side. We try not to disrupt there's no singing or dancing or anything that someone could say. You're disturbing us. I think religion could be used as a as a, as an instrument for peace. And uh, it's unfortunate that the, the politicalization of the status quo of our presence is being called provocative, or we're storming the Temple Mount when anybody knows it's very quiet, very orderly. Uh, and there's nothing wrong. We know what the Temple Mount is about. We know what the future is going to be. Uh, We will hopefully have our people prepared, and we'll wait. No one is going to start a war over this. No one is going to do anything disruptive, but our religion has, just as with the Christian religion, I think, has a very strong connection to the Temple Mount, to Mount Moriah, and that should be allowed to go ahead as long as no one is hurt and no one is disrespected uh, in an obvious way. And the Arabs, or I should say more properly the Muslims, are trying to take this in the wrong direction. I don't think they're going to succeed.
0: Winky, thank you so much. In, in a world and in a time where you can hear so many opinions and so many varying news reports over the last so many years. You have provided us with honest and, um, and and correct viewpoints, and we appreciate your insight, and we look forward to talking to you again soon.
5: I will surely be willing to do that. And again, at this time, I extend to you my sincere condolences and to all the family who have been personally knowledgeable of uh, uh, for more years than I would like to remember, because it just makes me older than I would like to think I am. And I wish everybody who's listening to us uh, pay attention to the Bible, to its prophecy, and the things you hear on this program. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: And we move now from Winky Madad to our European expert, John Rood. And John, let's just jump right into it here. I see recently that the German Chancellor Angela Merkel has met with Vladimir Putin for possibly the last time. Can you tell me the significance of this meeting?
6: Uh, Germany, of course, is uh, the, the most influential country in, in uh, the European Union. Uh, they have federal elections that are coming up on September 26. We know it's the end of Chancellor Merkel's term. So the uh, the next it's down to actually three candidates who will be chosen and one of the biggest concerns obviously is germany and russia and uh, there's constant reference now that the german russian uh, relations are at a low point and subsequently the european union and russia uh, relations are at a very low point so yes uh, chancellor merkel visited russia and ukraine and that will probably be her last visit, uh, officially. But let's just notice there's three main problem areas between Germany and Russia. Uh, Number one is Russia's domestic policies are repressive and persecution of the media. Uh, Second is there's Russian secret services operating in the European Union. And third, of course, is Ukraine. Nothing's really going to work out totally until Ukraine can be uh, put together. But we see now a pretty constant flow of comments that Germany and Russia are at a low point in
4: relations.
0: Well, in contrast to that, the Austrian foreign minister tells the Moscow envoy that it's time to maybe ramp up the relationship with Russia and the rest of the uh, European Union because they're going to be there, they're going to exist. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It seems like they're making overtures for a stronger relationship.
6: Yes well you know uh, diplomats have a, have a quite a fortitude quite a talent for diplomacy let's put it that way uh in in Brussels ministry i had probably seven or eight uh, diplomats uh ambassadors actually that were were part of the ministry so a lot of experience on that end and so the austrian diplomat this was done at a foreign minister level which is extremely high uh met with the Russian foreign minister and uh again the talk of historic lows um the Austrian foreign minister says relations between EU and Russia have hit their worst point at this very moment and uh but that little silver lining as you say there would be that Russia is a part of Europe and so therefore uh, for relations it's time for that to improve because Russia will always be a part of Europe so i believe russia latched on to that uh, particular phrase at the same time the the top of the european union foreign policy this is joseph borrell um, so he has actually come out in the, in terms of afghanistan saying if you know we let the chinese and the russians take control then the eu will become irrelevant in afghanistan so a lot of things happening there uh, austria is doing their job to Extend a bit of diplomacy. Uh, Russia is pushing, in fact, that they, you know, west of the Euro Mountains. Technically, you are in in Europe. So, let's all work together on that. But Russia has been a very dominating force uh, for this moment.
0: Well, looking away from Austria and back to Germany and. Their position is basically the hegemon of Europe right now. How is that going to relate? What is that dominance? What happens to that in the future? Germany. Yeah, good question.
6: Uh, we covered a we covered a bit of that in the in the past with your father, uh, not too long ago. And uh, Germany, of course, is trying to set some of the stage for the future. As we said, um, you know, Angela Merkel is working. You know. We see from the reunification stage, which was absolutely, you know, amazing. I remembered one year before the wall fell, walking in Berlin next to the wall, and the resident there I was with told me he "said this wall will never fall, and uh, here we go. You know, God had it fall within, within one year's time. Germany has been the center of what traditionally has been the Franco-German motor at the center of the entire EU. It's a bit regionalized. France deals more, you know, with issues of North Africa. Germany deals more with issues in Eastern Europe. And it remains very, very fluid. But at the time now, people are examining more closely uh, the hegemony, as you said, and Germany's power in throughout this whole decade where Germany has led the the crisis uh, through the Euro and all types of things. But I would I would put it this way that, you know, we're going to see still a good deal of fluidity, and there's still a lot of indications of strength and weakness, you know, all types of polarities in Europe, the north and the south, the east and the west, the uh, strong and the weak, pro-U.S., uh, those not so keen on the United States, just about any topic that you can, can find, uh, we have polarities in Europe, and this is what's equating to the strength and the weakness, which indicates the iron and clay from Daniel chapter 2.
0: John, just one final question, and this is a little off script, but I was going to ask you, due to the recent events in Afghanistan and the fact that maybe America... Uh, and the U.S. leadership has lost a little bit of face there in that region. Who's going to pick up the banner from where potentially the United States has dropped it? Um, is that going to come from the European Union? And if so, who?
6: Well, the European Union's concern is if Russia and China move in, they're, they have a bit more proximity. They have a lot more history, uh, certainly Russia. And uh, I believe Afghanistan now, the, you know, they're struggling for some credibility. That's a, that would be a big motive there. And some contact with the European Union could actually provide some of that type of credibility that they would be looking for. Extremely complex situation, I would say. Uh, generally speaking, each party looks out for their own interests. Uh, this is sort of a geopolitical uh, axiom. And so the European Union will be looking to extend their influence as far as possible uh, in Afghanistan. I would expect that.
0: Excellent information. Thank you so much again for your time, and thank you for informing our listeners.
6: Thank you, Rick. Very good. Good things ahead.
0: And we're back here right now on Prophecy Today with a good friend of both our family and our ministry, uh, Mike Gendron. Mike, from Proclaiming the Gospel Ministries, has been on the radio program with my father for many, many years now, and they've been at conferences together. Uh, Mike, if you could, if you just wanted to say something, I know you'd ask to maybe even say something about my father and his legacy.
7: Well, sure. I just really loved and admired your dad. We go back many, many years. I was the charter member of the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Conference, and that's when I first got to know your dad. And through the years, I was always enjoying his reports from Israel and also his insights into Bible prophecy and all that's going on in the world. And so we did a lot of conferences together, too. And of course, uh, as you mentioned, I've been on his radio show, Prophecy, today. So It was really hard for me to say goodbye to your dad. He was um, such an important person in my life and learned so much from him, but I know he's uh, receiving his reward in heaven now, and one day we'll all have this great reunion.
0: Amen. Amen. That's a wonderful thought and and certainly a wonderful idea. Um, I think the best thing we could do to honor his legacy would be to continue the work that he put so much of his life into, which is the radio program, and just basically educating the Christian community um, through sound biblical principles, so I appreciate you coming on with us today to talk about that.
7: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So you recently uh, wrote an article with some very interesting thoughts, and I just would love to get you to expound on them. Uh, One of them was, uh, we talk about, so much we talk about what our God can do, but Uh, You have talked about what our God cannot do. Tell us about that.
7: Well, sure. It's really an amazing insight into our holy and righteous God. We know that he cannot violate his holy character and nature, and this should give every child of God complete and immovable confidence because God always does what is consistent with who he is and what he has revealed in his word. And so there are several things that he cannot do, He cannot stop existing because He is the eternal God. He depends on nothing for His existence. In fact, He exists independently of His creation, and all of His creation depends entirely on Him for existence. In in Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, we read that He is from everlasting to everlasting. Another thing that's very important is in his character, he cannot lie. And of course, this ties into Bible prophecy. God has foretold what will take place in the future. And because he cannot lie, in fact, the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. He is truth, and his word is truth, and it's forever settled in heaven. And God is the only one who knows the end from the beginning, and that's because he controls all things. And so it's Encouraging for all of us that he has given us eyes to see into the future. And I know that's what your dad really focused on for so many years. And just love Bible prophecy because we have this confidence that everything that's taking place today is God working at his perfect plan. So another thing that God cannot do, he cannot change and he cannot learn. In fact, um, he cannot forget anything Our omniscient God cannot learn anything new because he is all-knowing, and he cannot change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's what uh, we read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. We also know that God cannot break his promises, and he has given many promises to his children, one of which he will not condemn those he has justified, and this is the blessed assurance that every believer has in Christ Jesus. There's this great promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is the judge who gives the legal verdict according to his law. And he's declared every condemned sinner justified and pronounces them righteous because of his faith in Christ. But on the flip side of that, Rick, we know that... um There's a terrifying truth associated with God as well, and that is God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And that simply means that every sin that's ever been committed by every man and woman that's ever lived must be punished. Divine justice must be satisfied. And so God didn't leave us in this hopeless and helpless condition, but he sent a Savior to satisfy divine justice for all those who would trust in him. And so... I know that there may be some of your listeners that may be a false convert that may never have really truly been forgiven by the Lord. And, And so this terrifying truth should cause every sinner to seek God's one and only provision for the forgiveness of sins. And at the end of our Lord's earthly ministry, he declared that repentance shall be preached in my name for the forgiveness of sins. And It's my hope and prayer that all of our listeners have done that. They've repented. They've changed their mind about who God is and and who they are, and they've come to the cross with empty hands of faith, trusting in nothing but the finished and all-sufficient work of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. So that is a little bit about what God cannot do. It's both encouraging and the blessed assurance for every believer, but also terrifying for those who are outside of christ
0: thank you so much mike for coming on and we thank you for again being a friend to my father to our ministry to our family and and for educating the listeners uh that are listening to us right now
7: well thank you so much and i wish you every blessing in christ and may the god of all comfort comfort you and your loss
0: thank you so much for joining us here today We will be back shortly to discuss Afghanistan with Dave James and then take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. Welcome back to Prophecy Today, the program that seeks to educate the Christian community on current events and what they mean and future Bible prophecy events yet to take place. Um, In doing so, we have a longtime ministry partner, who's Dave James, and he's been on this segment with my father for many years now. For those of you who do not know who I am, my name is Rick DeYoung. I'm actually Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's youngest son. And Furthermore, for those of you who also do not know, my father did indeed pass away. He died on August 15th. We've received many, many um, letters of sympathy, but also so many letters of encouragement of people talking to us and letting us know how much our ministry meant to them, how much my dad's ministry meant to them, even people from 50 years ago saying they were saved in a meeting that my father spoke at just so many different things that have encouraged us and our family. So for all of you out there, the heartbreak is definitely real because we're going to miss him. But of course, we have the ultimate hope that he is in heaven, and uh, that we know uh, that he uh, had eternal life. But we also have that that comfort that solace that many of you have provided by your uh, witness of his testimony here on earth and what that meant to you. So thank you so much. But uh, as I said, we do have in this regular scheduled segment Dave James. And Dave, if you could just talk to our audience and talk to me briefly about why dad thought these discussions were so important.
6: Sure, Rick. Well, it's, it's really great to be with you and, uh, I certainly miss being with your dad and, uh, it was a very special thing. Uh, we started about seven and a half years ago, I think. Uh, I was in the Philippines when we did our first Dave James reports. Uh, But your dad and I had a ministry relationship going back to about 1994 when he was a guest teacher in our first year at the Bible Institute in Hungary. And then uh, when we left Hungary and left Word of Life uh, to start the ministry of the Alliance for Biblical Integrity, that all started with an email to your dad, a two-line email asking him if he thought there was a need for an organization to uh, help hold the line on historic, conservative, evangelical ism and he thought there was and uh, so that started my new ministry and then a few years into that he thought it would be good to bring those issues current theological issues uh, to uh, his radio audience and uh, so that's when we started adding my segment to prophecy today and there's so many things happening I think the reason one reason it's important and we get a lot of feedback from listeners is that there are so many current issues taking place, that, uh, and it's just hard to stay on top of all of them. So uh, I do the research, your dad did the research, and we talked about these things that were affecting the body of Christ. It was very important to him, and it was certainly an important part of my ministry, and hopefully we provided a a good service for the body of Christ.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, David. We wanted to start to look at uh, some situations in the news, and we uh, the news has been dominated recently about Afghanistan, and I'm sure there's a lot we could say about the military and the political situation that uh, of what's going on there. But I wanted to focus more on this from an ideological and, and a religious perspective. What are your concerns going forward about the situation there?
6: Well, Rick, I've been following it very closely as many people have, and as I've been trying to get a lot of other work done as well. But I am extremely uh, concerned not only about what's been happening to civilians every day, but even more so about what's going to be coming after midnight on Tuesday, uh, August 31st, this coming Tuesday. You know, on this past Wednesday, in his first press conference since this all began, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken stated that the Taliban is in control of most of Afghanistan, and Press Secretary Jen Saki said the same thing just a little later. And they are in control of Kabul um, and most provincial capitals, and they're controlling not only who gets out of the country, but they're in control of what happens to those who can't get out. And despite what the administration is saying, retired four-star General Jack Keene has warned unequivocally unequivocally that there will be hundreds or thousands of American citizens who would be left behind. And this doesn't even begin to mention all the Afghanis who helped us for 20 years or all of the citizens of other countries who are still in the country. And as of April, there were troops from 36 different countries in Afghanistan, but beyond that, there's a combination of 46 embassies or consulates, which means that there are citizens from all those countries there, and who knows how many other countries are represented. And furthermore, the Taliban isn't the only threat. We originally went into Afghanistan because of al-Qaeda, and we now know that the most immediate threat is from a group known as ISIS-K.
0: Well, David, maybe you can Help us sort through who these groups are. What can you tell us about the similarities, the differences? Is there any connection between the Taliban, Al Qaeda, and this new ISIS K?
6: Well, Rick, the forces.net website ran an article on exactly that question just last week, and they started with this. The so-called Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, and now the Taliban are radical jihadist groups focused on ridding the world from the threat as they perceive it from Western culture uh, that Western culture poses to Islam. And then went on to say, however, although broadly speaking they share a similar ideology, their views actually differ significantly, so much so that the three groups have often found themselves in conflict with one another. So, Rick, Al-Qaeda was founded in 1988 by Osama bin Laden and Mohammed Atif, and follows what's called Wahhabism, uh, which is an extreme form of Sunni Islam and demands a literal interpretation of the Quran, and it was behind the 9-11 attack. Now, the Taliban is actually several groups, and they're also Sunni, but many of their principles come from a syncretism of very strict Islam with a traditional Pashtun tribal way of life in Afghanistan. Now, the three main Pashtun principles of life are hospitality, hospitality, asylum, and justice, or revenge against evildoers. So you can see how this creates a conflict even among the Afghans themselves, which is one reason that some are expecting an escalated civil war. Now, ISIS has been described as a hybrid of Salafism, Salafi Jihadism, Wahhabism, and Sunni Islamist fundamentalism. Now, One difference between ISIS and some of the other jihadist movements is its extreme emphasis on eschatology, which it uses extensively in propaganda material, making it a big selling point with foreign fighters. Now, the K in ISIS, K stands for Khorasan, which is a region that historically uh, encompasses much of northeast Iran and parts of Pakistan and Afghanistan, and they claimed responsibility for the, uh, the terrible bombings that we've been seeing uh, that killed so many on, on Thursday.
0: David, we've all heard politicians and even some uh, religious leaders say and make the case that Islam is a religion of peace. So I have two questions, I guess. The first is whether or not that's really true. And if not, if it's not true, then why is it that the majority of Muslims aren't involved with a violent jihad?
6: Well, Rick, let me answer the second question first. Why aren't most Muslims involved in violent jihad? I would say there is probably a practical reason, and then there's a theological reason. I think the practical reason is that just as with adherence of any religion, most people don't take their religion and their holy books, if there are any, they don't take them all that seriously, at least not enough to make a major impact on their daily lives. And, you know, it's not much different than with Christians, especially liberal ones, because most pick and choose how closely they're going to follow what the Bible teaches. And so, while it might and so while it may provide a general framework, it often isn't a major factor. And I would say the theological reason would be something that's called the law of abrogation. You know, the Quran isn't arranged by order of revelation, but from the longest chapter to the shortest chapter or surah and Muslims generally believe that the Quran was revealed to Muhammad by the Archangel Gabriel over the course of of about 23 years, and the law of abrogation states that later revelation supersedes or replaces earlier revelation. Uh, So Islamic fundamentalist terrorists would both take the Quran seriously, but also say that the verses that call for violence against infidels, including Jews and Christians, that those verses were revealed later uh, because uh, those groups wouldn't accept the earlier revelation and convert to islam and that 's a debate within Islam which verses uh, came earlier and which came later and here's uh, a couple of verses that show you this conflict in the Quran uh they would so the first verse uh, is two one o nine which which says many of the followers of the book wish that they could turn you back into unbelievers after your faith, but pardon and forgive so that Allah should bring about his command. Now the fundamentalists would say that this next verse nine twenty nine was revealed later and replaces that other verse, and it says this. Fight those who do not believe in Allah, nor in the latter day, nor do they prohibit what Allah and his messenger have prohibited, nor follow the religion of truth out of those who have been given the book, meaning uh, the Bible.
0: Earlier you mentioned, David, that uh, you're concerned with what will happen in Afghanistan. Um, and I, of course we all are, and that's that definitely seems to be one of the great tragedies of this. Um, And this could end, what you said, on Tuesday or as early as next week. As we wrap up, can you tell us what your concerns are? Sure. Well,
6: uh, first of all, there are American Christians who've been working as missionaries under the radar in Afghanistan, and there are others who have been providing humanitarian aid. And some of those are now in hiding. Uh, Some of uh, they feel stranded. They are stranded. Some have headed toward the airport and have had to head back. Uh, this is a dangerous situation. And then there are undoubtedly those from other countries who are also doing similar work. Uh, you know, there's a growing number of missionaries sending countries beyond the United States, and I don't know which of those have missionaries in... Uh, Afghanistan, but I would say South Korea, India, and South Africa, and and probably Brazil. Brazil's the number two uh, missionary-sending uh, country in the world. And so anyone in these groups who ends up being left behind is in grave danger of becoming a hostage or being killed or both, and perhaps in even greater danger are Afghan Christians. Uh, there are reports of the Taliban going door-to-door, hunting down Christians, and even checking phones for Bible apps with executions happening on the spot in some cases. Uh, that's what's being reported. Now, on Wednesday, the Catholic news agency reported this. With time running out to rescue civilians fleeing the Taliban, Afghan Christians and others whose names appear on U.S. government lists of qualified evacuees are being turned away at the airport in Kabul, representatives of aid organizations and others told CNA Wednesday. Now, I heard this exact same thing being said Uh, on Hannity and other programs. Uh, And this, uh, the Catholic News Agency also quoted a ministry director as saying this, I was told by contacts from various groups working to rescue those still in danger in Afghanistan who must remain anonymous that the State Department at least at a certain point, was not implementing the list that they require the organizations to compile, even though they have sent them multiple times. So this is a very dangerous situation and and a serious situation, Rick, because the Taliban has these lists, and these people who are on these lists are not being, uh, in some cases, not being allowed to the airport. And of course, the Taliban is uh, providing the checkpoints around the perimeter of the airport. So, and I'm also concerned that this could embolden radical Islamists everywhere in many other countries to wrap, ramp up their attacks on Christians.
0: Well, we certainly want to keep our Christian brothers and sisters there in Afghanistan, and all of, Af- all of Afghanistan in our prayers, but for the humanitarian crisis that's taken place, and, and actually the specific persecution um, of, of, of believers in Afghanistan, we'll want to keep them in, in our prayers. Thank you so much for this great information, and thank you for keeping our listeners informed, David.
6: I'm glad to do it, and I look forward to continuing.
0: We will take a short break, and then we will continue on with our final portion of Prophecy Today. And David will actually rejoin me for that segment as we go. We look at all that we have talked about throughout uh, our program today, and we are going to take that and take a look at the book, take a look at Scripture, and see what the Bible has to say about that. So stay with us. I'll I'll look forward to that as well.
2: Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the Scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of jimmy DeYoung's young 's new book Sound the Trumpets for only fifteen dollars, call us today at eight prophecy eight that's eight seven seven six seven four three two nine eight or visit us on the world wide web at prophecytoday dot com call today and make sure to get your copy of sound the trumpets
0: welcome back Prophecy Today, the ministry that takes a look at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. We are here at the final segment of Prophecy Today, where we are going to take a look at the book. This is a time that we set aside to look at Scripture. So we've been looking at current events and things that are taking place and giving you an honest and accurate representation um, with our broadcast ministry partners, and they've been coming on um, with their expertise, and they've been sharing this information with you. But now we want to take a look at that through the lens of prophetic scripture, and to do that with me today, I have... Uh, David James, he's a ministry partner. Uh, he's been a good friend of our ministry, and was a good friend for many years with my father, uh, while they were doing the program for over the last twenty years. Um, and David has been with them for much of that time. So we're going to take a look right now, David, and we look at these players that are taking place, and, and we see Afghanistan and Russia and China and all these different uh, nations that are that are in the news right now. But we want to take a look, and what does Scripture say? Uh, about the role that those nations are going to play in the end times?
6: Well, that's a great question, and uh, I know the listeners for this program are very interested in prophecy and biblical prophecy and and what's coming, what's ahead. Um, and we're not going to be here for the fulfillment of a lot of this prophecy, as will be Taken uh, in the rapture, and we'll we'll talk about that in just a, in a few minutes. But as far as I can tell, let's think about Afghanistan. As far as I can tell, Afghanistan isn't mentioned directly in the Bible uh, because it's just outside the range, the distance of countries that are specifically identified. You have countries to the northeast, west, and uh, or north and east uh, and south. Um, but not so much that far, uh, and the furthest country to the east that is mentioned by name is Persia, which is modern day Iran. But what's interesting is that I, that earlier I talked about ISIS K, and the K stands for Khorasan, and that's a region that overlaps Iran. Pakistan, and Afghanistan. And so while the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and ISIS hate each other, they hate Israel in the West even more. So you have the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So if we think about the coalition of nations that will come against Israel in the War of Ezekiel 38 and 39, they will be led by Gog of Magog, which is to the north, and most dispensate and most dispensationalists and prophecy teachers say that's likely the region of Russia. And we know that Russia regularly gets involved with Islamic nations. They lost the war in Afghanistan, but I think they will see this as an opportunity, and I know that uh, some of your other guests today have talked about uh, the role that Russia sees uh, going forward. Then here's another interesting thing. In Revelation 16, With the sixth bowl judgment, we read this. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, uh, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, Afghanistan is rich in mineral resources, and this is one of the things that's being said in the news, uh, including lithium, which China needs for battery production and they're already in talks with the Taliban, so this could be a connection. So if China is part of that group from the east that comes to against Israel, then they could easily bring those who are in Afghanistan as part of that force. Uh, And Afghanistan, again, is Islamic, so that could be brought into that coalition. And prior to uh, the... Bowl judgment, the sixth bowl judgment, back in Revelation 9 at the sixth trumpet judgment, there's an army of 200 million that will approach from across the Euphrates. So, as your dad always used to say, uh, the stage is being set. So, even though Afghanistan may not be mentioned directly, the countries that are involved with Afghanistan and moving against Israel in the end times during the tribulation period uh, toward the end of uh, I think it's very conceivable that it will have a role, if not a direct role.
0: That was a metaphor that my dad used, and it fits so perfectly. The stage is being set. The curtain is down now. And I don't know if you've ever been involved in a play, but you know, when the curtain is down, all the actors move into place behind the curtain. And then when the play is ready to begin the curtain comes up and right now what we see taking place is all those actors moving into place so that that is basically the the whole focus of our ministry is is not just looking at news for news sake we know you can get that anywhere you can go to CNN you can go to Fox News but we are looking at this news and how it is setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. David, could you talk to those that are within the sound of our voice, those that are listening to us right now, uh, if, if, if they were to see these things taking place, and they think or they were to realize that uh, the end-time prophecy uh, scenario is about to be fulfilled, what do they need to be do to be ready for that?
6: Sure. Well, that's also a great question, and I, I want to point out this. Sometimes, as I interact a lot on social media, I hear, I see people saying uh, we're seeing prophecy fulfilled. Well, no, we're not. As as we've said, it, we're seeing the stage being set. We're looking behind the curtain, but the curtain hasn't raised yet. And so we're not seeing the direct fulfillment of prophecy yet, but it is coming. And the pro- fulfillment of prophecy will pick back up with the rapture of the church. That's, as your dad used to say, that's the next event on God's prophetic calendar, we- meaning that it's imminent, meaning that it could happen at any moment. And at that point, we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that the dead in Christ will uh, rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air to meet the Lord in the air and uh, And so that's the rapture of the Church. Believers in Christ, living and dead, will be caught up. And then those who are left behind are those who are not believers in Christ, those who have never placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. So to avoid what's coming, to avoid the things that are coming that are far worse than anything we're seeing, by placing your faith and trust in Christ, the eternal Son of God, God became a man, lived a perfect life, died on a cross for our sins, taking our place in the punishment we deserve, and He arose again on the third day. He's alive, and He's coming back, and the rapture is part of His return, and then He's coming to the earth, and we need to be ready for this next event on God's prophetic calendar.
0: What a wonderful message, David, the message of the gospel. And thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thank you for sharing with our listeners. And we hope that you realize that we are in that end-time scenario foretold of in scriptures and that we do need to be ready and we have a, a chance to be ready. David, as my dad would have said, there's nothing left for us to say except let's keep looking up until.